Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you so much for truth that continues to set us free. We never have it all right. You do, Father. This is why we study your, your marvelous word. Thank you for the privilege of doing so this evening in a local assembly of peace and quiet that you ordained from eternity past so that we might grow closer to you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to make all this a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, uh, part five of the gospel, salvation and sanctification, uh, fantastic principles so far uh, in this series. Now is the time to focus, folks. Philippians 3.13 says, forgetting what lies behind. Matthew 6.34, do not be anxious about tomorrow. That cleaves out yesterday and tomorrow, leaving us doing this thing that truly does matter most. So let's take advantage of the grace we've been given here once again this evening. Uh, The last couple of lessons, we started off with Jude 3. Up here on the board, I have it in the Amplified to help out. It's the same concept. There's a sort of a warning flare uh, across the bow. And it's not just our church, by the way. It's across any church that uh, is looking to decipher uh, and rightly divide truth. This object this idea of the gospel truth what is it and how possibly has it been sort of mashed up over the years specifically in the last half century or so and how do we get it clear and and right um, especially with the imminency of christ and his return so jude third uh, jude uh, three uh, it's one three in the amplified beloved While I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I was compelled to write to you urgently, appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. The faith that is the sum of Christian belief that was given verbally to believers. Again, it's important too that He was compelled to write to you urgently, appealing that you fight strenuously for the defense of the faith which was once for all handed down. The faith that is the sum of Christian belief. And so when we talk about (coughs) the faith as in the nominative form uh, in a Bible study like this, it certainly is founded on the gospel proper. So we have to get the gospel proper correct so that the rest of it, the sum of our faith, is also accurate and untainted. And that is the good work that the Spirit's been doing with all of you uh, in this series. So that has also been the urgency of what the Spirit's been doing in this ministry as of late. Uh, Since we are to live in the imminency of Christ's return, it means that every day could be our last day, even before the rapture. And if the rapture still is still many years away, then we need to remember that life is but a wisp, a vapor, as James says. Let me give you James 4, 14 in the Amplified. Yet you do not know the least thing about what may happen in your life tomorrow. What is secure in your life? You are merely a vapor, like a puff of smoke or a wisp of steam from a cooking pot that is visible for a little while and then vanishes into thin air. The question then is, do you want to be a proverb or a witness? Do you want to go down as an individual that had it wrong, possibly to your own detriment? Or do you want to get it right and be a witness for Christ? Especially when it comes to the gospel. God promises to sanctify us, but we must be humble always. And I was thinking about this before class. What are we if we're not teachable? What are we if we're unteachable? 
Think about that. Go to 2 Timothy 4.1. 2 Timothy 4.1. So I suppose it's fair to assume that in someone's soul, uh, along the way, they hear, oh, we're going over the gospel. I already have the gospel nailed. I don't need to revisit that. Uh, I had that nailed when I was a child, you see. I've seen all the scriptures. I have all the scriptures memorized, so therefore the Spirit is able to do all the good work in me way back then, and I don't have to ever revisit the gospel again. Well, that's an idiot. 2 Timothy 4.1 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Trust me, what I've been teaching on in this series is definitely out of season. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Well, one of the great myths nowadays is that a believer can remain, that a believer, this is a myth, that a believer can remain alive to sin. And that's in contradiction to this fundamental argument that Paul set before us in Scripture, of course, in Romans 6, 2, part B, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? And that's a rhetorical question. So one of the great myths out there relative to the gospel is that there can be a believer who is still alive to sin. And that would mean that the word of God is blatantly wrong. Continuing 2 Timothy 4, 5, But you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This is Paul, of course. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. The word Paul uses for kept here is the same Greek word that John used. Go to John 14.23, John 14.23, it's that Greek word tereo, it's the same Greek word. Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. And he was encouraging Timothy, a younger preacher, to keep the faith, to be encouraged, to preach in season and out of season. Uh, there's obviously lots of times where the things that you teach from a pulpit are not popular. Because the flesh doesn't like the idea of what's actually in Scripture. They'd prefer that the pastor be watered down. They'd prefer, in many cases, that the gospel even be watered down so that it becomes a convenient gospel. So that they can go on pretending that they're saved or going to heaven or in good standing with God, but yet they're still alive to sin. Which Paul Foot fought tooth and nail against John 14 23 Jesus answered and said to him if anyone loves me in other words if they be saved he will keep my word produce good works and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him that's what it means if you love him you're saved that's why he uh, makes his abode with you. It's called the indwelling of the Trinity. Right? That's what happens when you're a believer. So if you're a believer, if you love me, they're basically the same thing, you will keep his word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And that's really uh, works. Produce good works. Again, this is the same Greek word that Paul used in uh, 2 Timothy 4.7. Up here in the board, he will keep from the Greek word tereo means to keep, to guard, properly maintain or preserve, figuratively, spiritually, uh, guard, watch, keep intact, 
The future active indicative means they dogmatically will. So if you're a believer, you dogmatically will keep his word. Listen, that's not Pastor Ed's opinion. That's the word. Now, if your flesh bucks that, or you're thinking of certain people that don't fit the bill, and then you say, well, geez, maybe they're not saved, don't get angry with the messenger. Do you understand? This is what the Word says. I'm giving you the Word in its rawest form. If you love Him, if you're saved, you will dogmatically keep His Word. What the Spirit's been saying bluntly to this congregation now since the start of this series is really very simple. Faith will produce works. It is the great litmus test for those who proclaim to be saved. It's impossible for a believer to not produce works. It is, uh, if a professor of faith never produces fruit, they are proven unsaved. And that's not me saying that. That's the Word of God. If John were standing right here, if Paul was standing here, if Jesus Christ was standing here, definitely if James was standing here, they'd say the same things. So this is not a novel concept from Pastor Ed. This is Scripture. And based on a few conversations I've had recently, which today amounted to, I'd say, between four and five hours of talking to probably five or six people just to see how everybody's doing, based on a few conversations I've had recently, I'd like to submit this as well as a balance statement. Heartfelt desire for godliness by grace through faith is fruit. Again, heartfelt desire for godliness, to do good, to move forward in the spiritual life, to keep His word, to keep His commandments. Heartfelt desire for godliness by grace through faith is fruit. Salvation and sanctification issues are heart issues. Works are never the basis for justification or what follows. If you're saved, you will have a heart that desires to do good, even though your flesh may get the better of you. These are heart issues, folks. Everybody here should know by now, you've proven it to yourself probably a hundred times today alone, that you still sin. Anybody shocked? Right? You're still a sinner. But, here's what the Word of God says. If you've been converted, if you've been made new, then that part of you, the one that you're supposed to identify with moving forward, the new creature, that one can't sin. That one has the desire of God. That one hates sin, which is why we naturally, quote-unquote, confess sin once we're saved. We see it, we hate it, we confess it. This is all part of being saved. It's the same repentant heart that an individual has evidence of at salvation. So, again, just as a balance statement so people don't get goofy, heartfelt desire for godliness by grace through faith is fruit. That means mean that you have no overt fruit for some time. You may, you may not. So this is a heart issue. Salvation and sanctification issues are heart issues. Works are never the basis for justification or what follows. If you're saved, you will have a heart that desires to do good, even though your flesh may get the better of you. Again, a godly desire is fruit. Go to 2 Corinthians 8.12. 2 Corinthians 8.12. A godly desire is fruit. I mean, there's a lot of people, let's face it, that are undoubtedly saved. And they really do, would, they really would like to do good. They really would like to help out around the church or help out here or, or, you know, or do this or do that. Or they see a need and they don't know how yet. They don't know how yet. They don't. They don't have the capacity for it yet, even though the yearning is there. Do you understand? And so they don't. But the desire is there. The heart is there. 
2 Corinthians 8.12, for example, here's a more overt case. For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, if you want to give something, you know, you might say, in all honesty, if I had a million bucks right now, I would give it to the church. And that might actually, truth be told, be an actual true statement. But you only have three cents. So, as of now, you give three cents. But what does God see? He sees the readiness. He sees the desire to give. That's godly fruit. And the only person that really sees that other than you is God. Unless you're off blabbing, but then at that point it might not be godly fruit because you're blowing your own trumpet and it ruins the whole thing anyways. Anyways, in a less practical way, a person may desire, let's for, say for example, in a less practical way, less obvious way than just giving something, a person may desire to love others, but they are unsure or still a bit insecure in how to do so. So their great fruit is to continue learning the Word of God. Showing up to class. Having a desire to learn the Word of God. That's part of the new creature. That's also part of sanctification, which starts at salvation. Which, by the way, is a promise from God. Don't believe me? Read Philippians 1.6. Promises to good, do a good thing, to complete a good thing, to mature a good thing in you that he started with. At salvation. Guess what? Even sanctification starts as a gift at salvation. It's not an option. You can't be a believer and still alive to sin, in other words. It's not an option. It was given to you, therefore it will come to pass. And if you're out here somewhere and nothing's come to pass, what the Word of God says is you might want to check the origin <laughs> That's the whole point. But anyways, in the beginning, it's quite often that your great fruit is really just to keep learning. So if you're truly saved, your greatest thirst will be for the Word of God, for truth, for Christ Himself. The only things that impede that endeavor are your enemies, like the flesh. However, Scripture is clear. Up here on the board, another balance statement. The new creature cannot sin. It is not able to sin. does never desire to sin. You are to identify with it, the new creature, not your flesh or its love of sin. You do not love sin. Your flesh loves sin. You, the new creature, don't like sin. And if you have been saved, you are a new creature. And that's how you will know that you're saved. And that's a supernatural thing, folks. So the new creature cannot sin, is not able to sin, does never desire to sin. You are to identify with it, not your flesh or its love of sin. And I was just reflecting today, just a lot of reflection even dragged my poor dog on an hour walk, and she was fed up after about a half an hour today. I'm like, let's go! i got some thinking to do. (laughs) Some have said in the past, myself included, why do I sin? Because I like it. Well, I would like to strike that notion from the record books permanently. I think it's misleading. I don't like to sin. My flesh likes to sin. But I'm not my flesh. So I'm going to stop that language, and I would encourage you to as well. We don't like to sin if we're saved. We hate sin, remember? It's why we confess it. Our flesh, on the other hand, loves to sin. But we're not to identify with that dead thing. We don't sin. Rather, it is the flesh. Don't believe me? Go to Romans 7.15. Romans 7.15. This was Paul's argument. I suppose maybe back then, since there's no such thing as anything new under the sun, so says Solomon, that these same concepts were things that had to be taught. And remember that we only have the canon. I mean, 
How many hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and thousands of hours have been taught behind pulpits? Even in the early church. We only have this, what's recorded in the Bible, it was remembered and then written down type thing, you see? And it's perfect, but it's certainly not all of it. At least not all of what was taught in specificity. Romans 7.15, though, again, we don't sin, it's our flesh. For what am I... What I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I, and see how he identifies here, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. <laughs> do you understand? So he is actually identifying with the new nature, first of all, and he's saying the sin in me is what does it. And it's a lack of English, it's a lack of um, language that it's so difficult to describe and where you can get a little tongue-tied on this. But what you should take away from that is that Paul realizes who he is in Christ and he's blaming the flesh for the sin. And that should be comforting to you. Because you should not be weighed down by identifying with the dead flesh. You should be encouraged by being in Christ, by being given this wonderful supernatural gift, this conversion to a new creature. That's who you are. And that's who you're supposed to identify with because that's who is eternal to you. That's the same soul and spirit that goes to heaven when the body goes to the grave. You are not the body. So there is your baseline litmus test, folks, up here on the board. A true believer has been changed. Even though the flesh may get the better of them, they always want to do good, Romans 7.21. Their desire may be counted as good fruit, since it is indeed a gift from God. God sees the heart. And you need to think about that, that that desire to do good is a gift from God. A gift. So again, even though the flesh may get the better of them, they always want to do good. Their desire may be counted as good fruit, since it is indeed a gift from God. God sees the heart. So this should quell any inappropriate insecurities that some of you might be having. And like I said, I've had a multitude of conversations, even this past week, um, with folks that were concerned about even their own salvation and sometimes even uh, how far back it's actually gone. Well, geez, was I just saved, you know, then? Was I saved then, you know? And... Uh, I'll say one person, but more than one person shared this story with me. They told me that for years after they were first saved, they still lived in sin. And as a matter of fact, they intimated that they loved living in the sin. However, my response to that is very simple and scripturally viable. First, that person, if truly saved at the time, did not like sinning, rather their flesh did. If they were saved, they did not like sinning, their flesh did. I asked them if they knew at the time that the sinning was wrong, and more than one person, they all basically said yes. You see, a believer's heart knows right and wrong because their conscience in the Spirit will convict them that's one of the gifts we receive at salvation. 
Now, I don't want to spend any real time on experiential sanctification issues right now as the Spirit's got us focused primarily on positional issues. I hope you see that. When you're talking about the Gospel, it's primarily a positional argument. But suffice to say that this same person doesn't live in that sin anymore. Go figure. You see, that's the living proof that they were saved, at least the way I see it. This person who said they were saved, so-called loved that sin living in it, now doesn't live in it at all. Is changed. You see, they kept learning the Word, and as a result, they have been progressively sanctified over the years. And you might ask, well, why then weren't they delivered from their lifestyle of sin right on the spot? Well, frankly, as I've taught you all for years now, the Spirit needs the raw materials to convict a person with. Those raw materials come from the study of the Word of God. God says that He holds those with knowledge accountable to it. So if you were living in a certain sin and you really didn't understand what the Bible had to say about it, you might have got a little bit of a free pass there for a while. But once you were convicted of it, once you did see Scripture, and what took you to Scripture? The heart of Christ. I just want to keep learning. I want to learn more and more. And the so-called risk of learning more and more is that you become what? More and more accountable. To what? To growing up. So this person kept learning the Word of God. And at that point, they became accountable to it. For this person, the full knowledge in Scripture hadn't taken root yet before. However, as they learned, they grew and were subsequently changed. I'd suppose that the Spirit was working, let's say, one step at a time with this person. You know, people show up uh, as sinners pretty, pretty wretched sometimes, pretty broken, pretty scarred up, pretty beat up, pretty bruised, uh, depressed, uh, beside themselves, lowly, a lot of things. And that just doesn't, you know, at salvation, sure there's a certain response, and it even is, should be emotional, that, wow, I'm saved. But there's a lot of work that has to go on in sanctification. But the Bible says, without any apology, that if that work doesn't happen, you're not saved. That's the whole point of these messages. That you have to, if you're way out here, and you think you were saved way over here, and you still are alive to sin, if your Lord is still the sovereign of sin, you have a problem. You have to at least look and say, did I make a decision for Christ? Have I made a decision for Christ yet? But back to this person. Again, I suppose that the Spirit was working one step at a time with this person, removing or adding fundamental aspects from or to their faith, so to speak. A lot of people show up confused about the gospel, about the spiritual life, um, about what it means to be saved, what it means after the fact. A lot of people show up confused because, frankly, they've either been in the world the whole time or they're coming from possibly a perverted religion. And lots of times, perverted religions leave their own brand of scar tissue behind. The Bible is clear that sanctification after salvation is a work in progress and that it is guaranteed. Guaranteed. You may only produce, as the parable of the talent says, one talent, <laughs> and someone else produces five, and someone else produces ten. Or as the parable of the soils, you may, you may be the person that produces, you know, thirtyfold, 
or a 60-fold, or a 100-fold. And there are all kinds of variables, and that's between you and the Lord. But sanctification is guaranteed. Go to Philippians 1.6. Again, there is nothing that I'm about to say or have said so far in the series that's not scripturally backed. I hope you appreciate that. And it's not really, other than my love for you and my desire to see you sanctified yourselves, to get out of your own way, to maybe help you with some stumbling blocks here and there, at the end of the day, the Scripture is here to convict you, not Pastor Ed. My job is to give you the truth in the Scripture. For example, Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, that implies that you're saved, okay, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And perfect means mature. Will mature you, in other words. So there's not a maybe he will, maybe he won't. There will be something. And if there isn't anything, that's the whole point of the angle so far that he's giving us. So what I see in retrospect with folks like the ones I mentioned that look back on their lives, if they have been saved, his guarantee of sanctification is held firm as Scripture is absolute truth. And that's how I look at it. And every person that I've talked to, that thankfully I believe these people are saved, has actually grown up. <laughs> and to me, that's proof. Right there. So that in of itself is a testimony to the grace and faithfulness of God. It's only those who somehow claim This is where the Bible says, oh, no, you don't. It's only those who somehow claim to have somehow lost their heart for Christ, let's say, let's put it that way, that need to look in the mirror. Okay? That's the issue here. Because a perverted gospel can produce just that. A perverted gospel says, oh, I'm saved, right? And then five years later, they're like, I don't, like, I don't, even, I don't even like Christ. Christ who? A, a true believer would never say that. Why? Because their heart has been changed. Christ indwells them. How could they possibly say that? They may sin. They may use his name in vain. We're not talking about that. But a person who turns around and says, I, I, you know, I, I, used to, I used to believe in Christ. I don't believe in Christ anymore. That's impossible. That's impossible. You're in union with him. That person is the one that Paul talks about. Go to 2 Corinthians. uh, Actually, I'll give you 2 Corinthians uh, 13.5 in the Amplified. It's supposed to be a slide. Just pretend I said up here. It's supposed to be a slide. 2 Corinthians 13.5 in the Amplified reads this way. Test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me, says Paul. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail the test and are rejected as counterfeit. Let me say it again. Test and evaluate yourselves to see whether you are in the faith and living your lives as committed believers. Examine yourselves, not me. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves by an ongoing experience that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test and are rejected as counterfeit? So is this a solemn thing to consider? Yeah, it ought to be, for all of us even. Is it something unique to Paul? Nope. Jesus, John, James, and the rest of the apostles were all encouragers of such self-examination. However, we also have to be careful not to take what he's been teaching this congregation too far, so to speak, 
In other words, never be looking to your left or your right and saying, Psst, so-and-so hasn't borne any fruit that I've ever seen. They must not be saved. Do not fall into the trap of usurping or attempting to. Our judge's authority to decide someone else's salvation. You don't have the ability nor the right to even try. You can certainly take the encouragement from the Scripture, as has been given from this pulpit, to encourage someone to read something like 2 Corinthians 13.5. The one thing I've learned as this ministry grows and grows, as I mature, as all of you mature, is that the only thing that ever makes a difference, the only thing that's ever able to convict somebody with, for any length of time is literally this, what is in Scripture, is the Word of God. If you plan on telling somebody, you know what, you're, God's holy and you're wretched, you better give them Scripture. If you tell them Jesus Christ is the Savior, you better give them Scripture. Do you understand? You better give them something to cling to. Unless they're totally ready, you know what I'm saying. The only thing that speaks to people ever is the Word. That's why my job is just a bus driver. Let's go to the Scripture. Let's go to the Scripture. See that? You see that? See that? Okay, let's go to the Scripture. See that? See that? See that? Let's go. That's my job. Go to... Go back now to John 14.23. John 14.23. And the reason I made that last comment is if you're struggling with someone and they're you know, obstinate about the gospel and you give them flat out scripture, you show up to their table with your Bible and you give them scripture and at that point they still reject it, what are you going to say? If the word can't do it, you certainly are never going to do it. John 14, 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Again, a point on the board. He will keep from Tereo means to keep to God properly, maintain, excuse me, pers- uh, preserve figuratively, spiritually, guard or watch, keep intact. Future active indicative means they dogmatically will. Up here on the board. If you are saved, your very nature, as we'll see later on, will be changed by grace through faith, such that it is impossible for you to not keep his word. It's impossible. Again, 14.24. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And that's a reference to Romans 8, 7. Look at, uh, go to Romans 8, 5. Romans 8, 5. <clears throat> it's funny because about 60 or 70 years ago, this, the emphasis in these lessons wouldn't have been necessarily necessary. It's strange. This problem that we're facing, although it's not brand new, uh, is of a new flavor. And it's only about 60, 70 years old, max. Romans 8, 5. For those who are according to the flesh, unsaved, they set their minds on the things of the flesh, because that's what they know. But those who are according to the Spirit saved the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Remember, it's not under that sovereignty. Whose sovereignty is the unsaved under? It's under the sovereignty of sin. So the law of God is over here, while they're over this law, which is the law or the sovereignty of sin. Therefore, that person is not subject to this law. Does that make sense? Two different sovereignties. If you're under this sovereignty, under this ruler, under this lordship, you follow that law. If you're unsaved, that law is what's in the sovereignty of sin. 
If you're under the sovereignty of Christ, it's His law. And you're subjected, you're under His lordship, you're subjected to His law. But you can't be both. You can't serve two masters. Doesn't the Bible say that somewhere? Yeah. But see, people want to gray the lines. No, I want to be, I want to have eternal life, but I want to remain over here. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, that's the analog to being in Christ, and those who are in the flesh, unsaved, cannot please God. It's impossible. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, because they were saved. If, indeed, the Spirit of God dwells in you, think of 2 Corinthians 13, 5 that I just read to you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Well, that's pretty plain language, folks. And that's just the way it is. Now, getting back to the gospel proper up here in the board, we are defending something, hence Jude 3 at the beginning of class for the last three classes. There's a convenient gospel out there. Too many professing Christians have never addressed the issue of their depravity. That's part of that convenient gospel. Just believe these facts and you'll be saved. But they never consider the simple fact, the way that Jesus Christ himself laid it out for those he came across. You have to repent, my friend. You have to want me. You have to want all of me. And I'm Lord and Savior, my friend, not just Savior. So too many Christians, professing Christians, have never addressed the issue of their depravity. They figure... Oh, well, I can just do this thing, you know, look at this coin, read it, and say, oh, yeah, I totally believe, and then I get to stay under the sovereignty of sin? Well, there's a gospel out there that says and promotes that very thing. They have simply given mental assent to a cheap gospel, and then they're told they are heading for heaven. Up here on the board, for a person to say they love Jesus, implying that they are saved, but then not keep his word. We just saw that in John 14. That's antagonistic to the, to the scripture itself, to Jesus' own words. For a person to say they love Jesus, implying they are saved, but then not keep his word, obey his commandments as a way of life, which means he is Lord, is for that person to challenge the veracity of Jesus' own words in John 14. There is no obedience implied in easy believism. So what happens is you end up with what you might call a vapid gospel, a gospel that has no, uh, that I like to be, say has been emasculated. There's no oomph behind. There's no actual change. There's no actual obedience. There's none of that. It's just this, say this prayer with me and you're saved. Say these words with me and you're saved. So you have whole churches believing they're saved, and they're not. I mean, think of the ones that are following the Pope. If they actually follow their own doctrines, they can't be saved. I actually did a, a, a study on it, a very brief one, 10 minutes, I kid you not. And I'm saying to myself, why do these people not take 10 minutes and figure it out for themselves? 10 minutes. And I'm like, how in the world do they follow this garbage? How? Because they don't really want to give up the old life. They want to go church going, and someone tells them that they're saved, but they really don't want to give up the old life. While Jesus was saying, listen, if you don't give up your own life, you can't follow me. If you don't deny yourself, you can't come to me. But I guess people don't really want to know truth at the end of the day, right? So there's no obedience. Let me read that again. The convenient gospel. For a person to say they love Jesus, implying that they are saved, but then not keep his word. For example, obey his commandments as a way of life, meaning he is Lord, means that person's in the sovereignty of Christ, is for that person to challenge the veracity of Jesus' own words in John 14. If you don't like it, take it up with Jesus. You read the same scripture I did. There is no obedience implied in easy believism. 
Let's see what the Apostle John had to say about this. Go to 1 John 3, 1. 1 John 3, 1. <clears throat> see, that's the point, folks. You have to learn that the only truth is not your experience, even with yourself or others. The only truth is what the Bible says. And if it's offensive to you, too bad. You don't have the right to take Jesus' words and mangle them so that you broaden the gate that leads to life. The gate is narrow, and few find it. Did I say that? No. Jesus Christ himself said that. It's narrow, and few find it. And the scripture says you actually have to struggle for it. You have to fight for it. You have to get through the garbage of that life and say, I don't want that anymore. That's real. That's not some mental game that people play after a a song is played at 100 decibels. 1 John 3, 1. Let's see what John says. John did not hold back, by the way. If you read 1 John in its entirety, really he was making a distinction between the entire time between believers and unbelievers. You want to know if you're a believer? Check this out. You want to know if you're an unbeliever? Check this out. Believer this. Unbeliever that. He says they're obvious. It's it's obvious. But see, people don't want to say that. People want to morph it and make it some mangled thing about spiritual versus carnal believership. Carnal believers don't even, even exist. You can be and behave carnally, but there's no such thing as a carnal believer. That would imply a person's going to heaven and still live under the lordship of the sovereignty of sin. But that's an accommodation that people have made after they've mangled the gospel. After they've said and proposed and postulated that you don't have to repent as part of the gospel to be saved. What do we do with all these dangling threads then in the Bible? Well, let's call it something else. Let's invent new doctrines that aren't actually there to accommodate Anyways, I digress. You can see how intense the study has been. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And that's a reference to believers. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Now, sins is from harmatano up here on the board. Sins, it's the present active indicative, means an absolute lifestyle. So what John was saying, whether we like it or not, is not the issue. What John was saying is very simple. No one who abides in him sins. No one who abides in him has an absolute lifestyle of sin. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Did I say that? No. That's the inspired word of God. What else can I say? No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Applying this to the rest of the verse, John is essentially stating, without apology, that a person who abides in sin as a lifestyle is not saved. And why is that? Because they can't. That's the whole point. J. Vernon McGee up here on the board. Gotta love this guy. He says, now if you go off to the pig pen, that's the old nature. And if you stay in that pig pen, you were never God's child. If you can be happy in sin, my friend, then you are not God's child. Because God's children have the nature of their father. Look. That's not him saying that. That's not me saying that. All we're doing is conveying Scripture to you. Now, if Scripture is 
offensive to you, well, that's your problem with God. I'd only add that those of you who feel it necessary to challenge the apostles' starkness, then you realize that you are bringing into question God's ability to make such a change in a person. Do you realize that's what you're saying? And that's where the muddying of the gospel even gets really muddy. Again, for those of you who feel necessary to challenge the apostles' starkness on the subject, you are bringing into question God's ability to make such a change in a person. God says he'll make that change. So what do you want me to say? You want me to lie to you and say, oh, it's okay, just believe these words right here. You're going to heaven, and uh, it's okay that, you know, don't ever look at your fruit because you might not be saved. You never will produce any fruit. So just go back and live in the sovereignty and under the lordship of the self-life, which is the sin. And if you get there, you get there. No. In other words, look, I'm going to give you a, a really good thing to think about, and I've been thinking about this for a very long time, for months now. The danger of rational thinking. See, a person, a rational person says, that's impossible. How could that possibly be? Well, that's human rational thinking. That's, it's not even consistent. So a God can create the universe, but he can't make something new in you? Honest to goodness, think about that for a moment. You believe that he can create the universe, become a man, separate from himself on a cross for three hours, die for the sins of the world, but he can't make a change in you? He can't give you a new heart? He can't sanctify you when he says he will? So Philippians 1.6 is somehow should be thrown out. The entire first epistle of John should be thrown out then because that's all John does habitually throughout the whole thing. I guess we should just discount the whole thing. Oh, let's just spiritualize it. Let's just say that's the difference between a carnal believer and a spiritual believer. Let's do that thing. Let's mess the whole thing up. And then let's make little protocols out of certain verses to accommodate that screw-up. Do you see how pervasive when you touch the gospel, by the time you end up way out here on a spiritual vector, it's a, it's a mess when it should be really simple. And that's how we're going through this, folks. The danger of rational thinking. <clears throat> we ought to use human experience to interpret the Bible. We ought to use the Bible to interpret our experiences. And that may sound like a play on words, but it is not, my friends. Trust me. We are not to come and say, well, this has been my experience, therefore this is what John meant. This is my experience, therefore this is what Jesus meant. This is my experience, this is what Paul meant. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Wrong. You have to take the word at face value. And if it busts up what you think you knew, then so be it. Do you want truth or not? So we aren't to use human experience to interpret the Bible. We are to use the Bible to interpret our experiences. Think about it this way, and this is very telling, folks. <clears throat> the devil got Eve to use human experience. God said what in the garden? Hey, listen, you two. You can eat anything in this garden, just not from that tree, the one with fruit all over it that looks good to eat. Or else you'll die. Okay, if I told you right now, I'm not God, but suppose I was, right? Burt's Bees, right? If I said, if you put this on your lips, you will die. Right? And there's like 20 other Burt's Bees sitting there. You know, chapstick, the whole nine yards, all of them. But there's this one sitting there. He says, if you put that on your lips, you will die. What's your human rationale say? There's no way. I just saw God put it on his lips. He didn't die. 
Oh, you mean human rationale can get in the way of one of God's commands? Is that what you're saying? Human rationale can pervert the absolute dogmatic truth as it's stated in the Word of God. Is that what we're saying? Absolutely. God's Word was on the scene. It said, if you eat from that tree, I don't care how good it looks, how much you think it tastes good, or you think it's going to taste good, you will die. What did Satan do? He came in, he goes, Eve, look at the fruit. You know it's good to eat. It looks just as good as any of the other fruit in here. It makes sense to me, doesn't it? It makes sense to you. What did Eve do? She saw that it was what? Good to eat. That's human rationale, folks. And human rationale is why we're at where we're at. So we don't have the right to use our experience. Just because they were in the garden, they ate from 52 other different trees that looked exactly the same, and they said, this is impossible, it's the same tree. Does not mean they had the right to break the law of God. Fair? See, human rationale is what gets us all in trouble. As soon as we take... Do you remember, look, wasn't uh, the second lesson I did on uh, justification by faith, I pulled because of one bad question that I put out there. Do you remember what it was? How can an unsaved, how can a person who's never heard the gospel be saved? Bad question. The better question, is it possible that God can get everybody that wants the gospel, the gospel? That's the right question. <laughs> I asked the bad question, and I took some people to a little bit of a spin, myself included. That's what happens when you ask bad questions. And that's what Satan did to Eve in the garden. He got her thinking with human rationale. Oh, there's no way Uncle Jimmy was the nicest guy I have ever met. There is no way a loving God would send that guy to the lake of fire. (laughs) What's the Bible say? If Jimmy was an unbeliever, guess where he's going? He's going to the lake of fire. He could be the nicest guy ever, quote unquote. He's still going to the lake of fire. What is that? What is that? That's called human rationale. Human rationale says to hell with the word of God. Human rationale says, to hell with the word. I think it's this way. Uncle Jimmy's a wonderful guy. I think he should go to heaven. Therefore, he's going to heaven. I know, I know what the scripture might say. I've never studied it, so I don't know. But I know what the scripture might say. um, But I don't care. I don't think God's that way. I don't think God would send Uncle Jimmy, the nice guy, to hell even though he never accepted Christ, he denounced Christ, having given the gospel myself. Do you see how human rationale can screw everything up? Human rationale is an abomination. Human rationale is what exists over here in this sovereign. Under this lordship. So if you still have human rationale and you haven't been changed and you claim you're going to heaven, guess what? You think like this person. You think that, hell, I don't care if I have any fruit whatsoever. I don't have to have any fruit. Human rationale says I'm saved. All over here. Do you understand? I hope so. So, anyways, I'm, pretty, I'm out of time. Thank God, because my voice is shot again. That pattern in the Bible the one that started in the, in the garden, I need you to think about it long and hard. Really, truth be told. The point on the board and the example I gave you in the garden, it's how it all started. It's the same pattern he's been using ever since. Literally, ever since. Any doubt that comes in your head, usually a bad question. Usually someone came along, sometimes even inadvertently, sometimes on purpose, asked a bad question. I had some Jehovah's come to my door the other day, and they started asking me all these bad questions, and I was wrangling with them for a little while. And then I walked away and said, you still didn't handle that right. Because they had me all screwed up with, like, bad questions. I'm like, that's not even a good question. Do you know what I'm saying? 
It was like they were coming from over here. You know what I'm getting at? I'm like, oh! Right? And I walked away, and like, there's that little twinge of like, what the? I'm like, cut it out. You should never have any doubt. They were completely gone. Right? But just because the questions are kind of like, you know what I'm getting at? Just, just ask just the right way. You know? They get you to think. And that critical thinking thing is what got us in trouble way back in the garden. They should have just paid attention and said, doesn't make any, doesn't make any sense naturally, but if God says we're going to die if we eat that thing, then let's not touch that thing. What do you say? If God says, look, you will produce fruit, and you're not producing fruit, what do you want me to say? What would you like me to say? You want me to lie to you? You want me to say that's not the case? No. So you, even if you're offended or not, it's not the issue. Read the Bible, see what the Scripture says. And don't go in there with a perverted system of thinking either. And don't go in there with your own ideas about life and then get the Bible to fit your ideas. Don't do it. Read it, see what it says, and then apply that to your life. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.